the article, which details a boatload, they'll make that a yacht load of off-the-field issues plaguing the Washington Commanders and their controversial owner, Dan Snyder, is titled simply, Sources, Commander's Boss Snyder Claims Dirt on NFL Owners and Goodell. We are joined today by the three co-authors of that bombshell article, ESPN senior writers Don Van Natta, Seth Wickersham, and ESPN investigative and enterprise reporter Tisha Thompson-Dan. This article has been sort of at the forefront of all the discussions surrounding Dan Snyder over the last couple of weeks. It's a fantastic, deeply sourced enterprise piece that lays out so much information that hasn't really come out before. It's really a bombshell article, and uh, we've been talking about it for the past couple of weeks. Now we have the writers who did the deep dive, who worked for months on this, and we're going to have a riveting conversation about all things Dan Snyder, and that makes me very happy. Yes, this is uh, one of these special episodes, Dan. I know I use the word, but uh, this is pretty special. One, one topic today, all things commanders. So, Dan, we talk about uh, the stories that kind of change the tides. We talk about them a lot. And we'll give these guys all the credit about how they helped break this story, how they, you know, kind of looked under some additional stones and and maybe, uh, you know, we'll see single-handedly, I think, helped help change the tides of this and obviously introduced a lot of people to the story. And, and this whole concept of Dan Snyder digging up dirt, it's not necessarily, you know, new in, in general, but it was new with respect to being digging up dirt on owners and potentially the commissioner. So. They're going to explain their sourcing, explain how the story came about. And Dan, really a credit to you. Dan, I, I know uh, I was listening to various podcasts with Seth Wickersham as a guest and, and Don as a guest and Tisha as a guest. And I kept hearing references to it, what I thought were your tweets. And then wouldn't you know that was confirmed when we started to speak to them? And they're in the weeds on the journalistic side. And obviously our show has been in the weeds on the legal side. So it's a wonderful marriage and a fantastic conversation really in the, the deep, dark web of the story and where it goes from here. Yeah, I just don't want to sign any prenuptial agreements just yet. But I mean, the the expertise that we try to bring to the table, we're not, you know, enterprise or investigative journalists. Those are three of the best in the business. I mean, you're talking about, you know, years and in, in, in so many of the big stories, you know, the relocation cases, Jerry Jones, Spygate, Deflategate. I mean, these are really like, you know, legendary sports enterprise investigative reporters where we fit into the equation, I think, is you and I have tackled, you know, sort of the foreign language of the NFL constitution and bylaws. It's this archaic document that is over 50 years old, and no one really knows what it means because it's never been put into play until potentially now. So I think what, what has intrigued you and I, and particularly me, is how is this process going to unfold if it does go to that next level? And Dan Snyder is placed in the NFL equivalent of a trial before a jury of his peers how will that process work? What are some of the legal issues that could come up during the during the trial, as well as in any post, you know, hearing, you know, lawsuits if Dan Snyder wants to do everything possible to save his team? And I think you and I independently have examined those issues. So where we fit into the whole puzzle is to try to demystify some of the legal proceedings and try to game plan how some of the next steps could play out, because inevitably, as Andrew Brand is fond of saying, there will be lawyers. Well, as Daniel Wallach is fond of saying, there will be litigation. And you have to be able to think about all the different points of entry, because if Dan Snyder is known for anything, he's a serial litigant. And you know his sort of behavior over the course of the last couple of years 
has been one as someone who's unhesitatingly suing everybody and anybody to try to get at information. And if he's backed into a corner, he'll do everything possible to save his team. So we've got to think about these issues. Dan, I think that is a fantastic place to put it. We have a tremendous interview lined up. We went, I don't know, Dan, very pretty close to an hour with those guys. But before we kick to the interview, a little bit of business. Uh, our podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the galaxy. Dan, last episode I mentioned, if people wanted to get the right discount code, just reach out to me directly. And uh, some of you decided to take me up on it. Listen, if you if you reach out to me and you ask me about Themis, that's a direct way to my cell phone and probably to my heart. So if you have a question about Themis, you're trying to get the right discount code, trying to save us a few bucks, certainly we are the right show to do. We have our special discount code, but just reach out to me and I will hook you up. Okay, Dan, I think it's about that time. Our, our conversation with Don Vanatta, Seth Wickersham, and Tisha Thompson of ESPN. We are joined today by the three co-authors of the much-talked-about article, Sources, Commander's Boss Snyder Claims Dirt on NFL Owners, Goodell, the three co-authors are ESPN senior writer Don Van Atta, ESPN senior writer Seth Wickersham, and ESPN investigative and enterprise reporter Tisha Thompson. Don, Seth, Tisha, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. And by the way, I have a feeling you're going to be hearing those words quite a lot over the next few years as this drama unfolds. That's for sure. Hey, Dan, good to be with you. Well, I've read the article probably about 15 times. It's taken me a long time to put together all the details and organize them, but I want to go back to the origin of this story. And Don, my South Florida neighbor, I'll start with you. There seems to be an overarching theme to this, which is you're asking the existential question, why is Dan Snyder still the owner of the Washington Commanders? Why did you start there? I mean, we're, you could have picked up this story at any sort of any of the, the, the tentacles that are out there already, you know, the DEA investigation, Congress investigation, Mary Jo White, Beth Wilkinson, you could really start from anywhere. And this is really an open-ended question for the three of you. Why did you choose the why is he still an owner as sort of the backdrop to the story? Well, every investigative project starts with a simple question. And this one was like all the other investigative projects the three of us have done. It's a very simple question that has occurred, not just to us, but to fans of the Washington Commanders, to people around the NFL. It's something that Seth and I and Tisha were hearing about. Why has this guy survived so much at this point? And that very simple question has, we found out, a pretty simple answer, at least in the very beginning and how we started the story. And that is that Snyder has fortified himself with information collected by private investigators. It's something that he has told people around him repeatedly, and that it's basically his insurance policy for keeping his beloved franchise, the dirt that has been collected on fellow owners, people in the league office, and Commissioner Roger Goodell. And if forced to, with his back against the wall, he will, in his own words, blow up the NFL. And so it was a a simple answer to a simple question, but obviously there were many other tentacles and many other pathways of investigation that, that came from that. But but that was the question that we asked. And it wasn't, as I say, I want to really stress, it wasn't just our question. It was a question that we were hearing from many frustrated fans and people around the league. I mean, literally, 
it would be the question I would get. I started really reporting out all of those various tentacles, Dan, that you were referring to when the congressional investigation launched. John Keim, who is our beat reporter, who's been covering the team for more than 25 years, was trying to, you know, cover trades and injury reports, game time decisions, and do the congressional investigation. So I called him and I said, John, what can I do to help you? Because I have always enjoyed reporting on Capitol Hill. I recognized when the House Oversight Committee was going to open this inquiry, this was going to be a big deal. It doesn't happen all the time in sports in particular. It doesn't happen all the time generally. And when that when the House Oversight Committee opens an investigation, you should pay attention. So John and I started to really report out what was coming out of Capitol Hill. And every time he and I did a story, every time Congress released a report every time, you know, someone was subpoenaed or there was a deposition or any kind of information came out, even after the DEA investigation this summer. The question I would get as soon as I told folks on TV, this is what happened was, well, why does he still own the team? Every radio host who interviewed me would say, why does he still own the team? Every fan, because I live in the Washington, D.C. area. I grew up here. I'm surrounded by fans, huge fans. Why does he still own the team? So truly, it came from the demand of the fans and folks who care about this story. They want to know, what is what has he got? This information was reported by you in October. The NFL has been propping him up for several years. And maybe Seth could provide some, or shed some light on this, but the NFL had every opportunity in 2020 with the onset of the Beth Wilkinson investigation to do a truly independent investigation. Yet, they allowed Snyder to remain involved in the investigation, to have a seat at the table, to actively interfere with Beth Wilkinson's pursuit of information, and to, as your investigation showed, to use his inside access to the investigation as a tip sheet to begin hounding potential witnesses and maybe try to silence them. Why did the NFL go back two years ago and provide Snyder with that kind of unprecedented involvement in an internal investigation where you're supposed to have at least some semblance of neutrality? It's a terrific question. And it's, I think it was one of the pieces of reporting that we were all able to get that I thought shed a lot of nuance into this situation. You know, back in 2015, Don and I did a story on the Patriots and the NFL from Spygate to Deflategate. And there was the perception from a lot of owners that the league almost colluded with the Patriots back in 2007 for Spygate, destroying tapes and sweeping an invest a horrible cheating investigation under the rug. And I felt like that there was parallels to this. One could argue that it's the league office's job to prop up the teams, whichever way possible, but that's not the standard that Roger Goodell has set. And I think that it galls owners that really you know, going back to the Beth Wilkinson investigation, which was supposed to be a written report, it ends up not being a written report at all and very and not released publicly, that the perception from owners that Roger Goodell simply does not want to touch this. And he hasn't brought it up in any of the privileged sessions, which are the owners only sessions, all the team executives get kicked out for those. And it's really something that I think that, and even you see Jim Mersey speaking about it now publicly for a lot of owners, incredibly frustrated that Roger Goodell almost seems complicit, <laughs> as complicit as the league seemed back in 2007 for the Spygate investigation to keep the status quo. And I think that as much as why Dan Snyder is an owner, is still the owner of the team, is a question that fans ask. I think that it's actually a question that league executives and 
other owners ask too. And that was a reporting lane that, you know, we tried to dive into as thoroughly as we possibly could. I think it's also important to remember the origins of the Wilkinson investigation. When the Washington Post first expose about the toxic workplace culture inside the franchise, that same day, the team announced it was going to have an independent investigation. And it was the team who initially takes on Wilkinson. And then the NFL takes it over about six weeks later. So it did not originate with the NFL. It originated with the team, which, of course, brings up this very controversial document, which I think for your legal brains listening to this podcast would be fascinated by and probably know a whole lot more about, which is a common interest agreement that the team and the league signed where they would share the information. And it essentially gave Dan Snyder veto power over whatever the league ended up releasing. The, the league in a statement has said, well, what, we're going to release whatever we decide we should release. But when you really push the NFL, when I when I started to really ask these questions, beginning when we became first aware of the common interest agreement through the congressional investigation last February, when I said to the NFL, well, how common are these agreements? Are these just sort of standard practice agreements that the lawyers always do with every team? Or is this unusual? Was this an unusual agreement? NFL wouldn't, wouldn't talk about it. The NFL will not answer any questions about Wilkinson. Every single question I have thrown at them about the Wilkinson investigation, they just, they won't, they won't answer. Yeah. And, and let me just say one thing about the common interest agreement. For me, I think for all of us, it really is sort of the holy grail of this entire story. As Tisha points out, the fact that this investigation started, Beth Wilkinson, people forget this, was chosen by Dan Snyder to be the investigator of Dan Snyder's team. And then six weeks after being hired by Dan Snyder, Beth Wilkinson begins to do the investigation for the NFL. They take it over because, and a lot of people forget this, Dan Snyder's lawyers already began meddling in the investigation and trying to shut down witnesses. And then the NFL signs this, this common interest agreement. We know very little about it, but it's in the NFL's interest, apparently by signing it, to keep control of the investigation. And Roger Goodell has talked again repeatedly about transparency. We want, he talks about the Mary Jo White investigation, which is currently going on on behalf of the NFL about the sexual misconduct allegations about Snyder, the financial impropriety allegations. And, you know, Goodell talks about, well, we're going to wait to see that report. We're going to make that report public. Everything's going to be transparent. Well, almost nothing was transparent about the Wilkinson investigation by design by design of the NFL and Dan Snyder. So Dan, to your question about complicity and, and, you know, and Seth made the point, there is a complicit nature to this that is kind of galling that the NFL and Snyder seem to have been in lockstep. And some of our reporting shows that the NFL looked the other way for Rooney rule violations and all sorts of other bad behavior by the team. And again, the question that arises from that conduct is why? You were talking about Wilkinson and that Snyder picked Wilkinson. Don't ever lose sight that Beth Wilkinson is the attorney who was hired to represent Brett Kavanaugh during the Supreme yes. Court process. And that had happened just very recently when Snyder was looking for someone to investigate the claims. That, that had only been about a year and a half earlier. And so Wilkinson's name had very much been in the headlines because of Kavanaugh. While we're here, Tisha and Don, I mean, Dan and I have been covering this since, you know, July of 2020, whenever they announced the initial 
investigation. But I think many people that are coming in now, and obviously you guys are in the weeds of this, but once upon a time, Dan Snyder was the one that picked Beth Wilkinson, right? And then, you know, there was some additional Washington Post reporting. And I remember Dan and I jumping on the podcast and we said, well, the NFL is intervening. Okay, so now Beth Wilkinson reports the NFL. But why isn't Beth Wilkinson being taken off the case? Dan and I are both lawyers. If you, uh, I don't know, if there's some type of conflict, right? Or if the, someone wants to supersede, you replace the lawyer. So Dan and I already said that this appears to have some, you know, uh, some impropriety here that Beth Wilkinson's not being removed. A handpicked lawyer, yes, maybe now the fees are being somewhat split between the NFL and Snyder, as is, I think has been somewhat out there. But the actual selection was initially made by Dan Snyder. So I, I think yeah. that's where the NFL got off on the wrong foot. If they really wanted to create the appearance of an independent investigator, you bring in a new lawyer that wasn't attached, you know, at day one to, to the commanders and to, to Dan Snyder. I'll give you guys some credit here as ESPN. And I, I you know, I, there's obviously been Dan Snyder has come out and refuted your, you know, reporting in, in some way, shape or form. But Dan Wallach and I, we were here a couple, uh, maybe about a, a couple months ago at this point, but we saw the Baxter Holmes report with the Phoenix Suns. And we said that ESPN is not going to invest all this time and effort in that type of report. Same type of stuff. Uh, Robert Sarver was very adamant that Baxter was had an, an ax to grind. And then, would you know, the NBA did a report and confirmed largely, you know, the findings of that report. And that's what kind of set this in motion. So when you guys dropped that report, you know, on our desk about two, three weeks ago, that seems to have pushed this over the proverbial hump. So I guess a question to, to the three of you, what made you keep poking around? I mean, you would think after two years, the Washington Post has been investigating this. Everyone's had their hands on it. And then you guys seem to have pulled back another layer that all of a sudden, you know, got uh, you know, Jim Mersey speaking, had the owners meeting percolated. And is it just something that that popped up or, or maybe you had some something you were working on for, for you know, several months? It was all Seth. Seth said, I just feel like there's more here that needs to be done. And I think I should let Seth explain where his brain was this summer about why he thought we should start really connecting more dots. I don't know. It was like, you know, I, I thought that there was more to say about Dan. And this was around the Super Bowl. If you remember back to the Super Bowl, Roger Goodell, for the first time really ever, distanced himself from not only Snyder, but from the decision to remove him. He said it's an owner-driven decision. He really put it in the, in the laps of his proverbial bosses. And I thought that given all of the investigations that Dan Snyder was facing, there was this great statement about America to be done in that time, January, February, that you know, he was under investigation from all these different entities, including Congress, and that he might be going to the governor's mansion of Virginia or Maryland and being wooed with public money to build a stadium there. And so I had talked to our editor about it, Mike Drago, and Tisha obviously has such great repertorial antennas in DC and, and kind of knows where to go for everything. And he suggested bringing her on. And then as soon as she started working on it, Snyder blew it. <laughs> the, the congressional hearing happened. We heard from some of the former employees with their allegations and, you know, how he was able to take a situation like that. I know that a lot of your listeners will say, cry them a river, but building a stadium is the hardest thing for NFL owners to do. And most of them have done it with far more adversarial situations than Dan Snyder blew. And so we were working on that together. Tisha was really digging into the hows and the whys of how he blew it. And then Don had just come out. We all kind of work on different things at the same time. And Don had just come out with his profile on Rob Manfred 
in the summer and we were talking and he was the one who really crystallized the idea of how has he survived. And I thought that, you know, I just thought that all these kind of pieces that we had reported together started to fit together with that clarification on his part. And then Don and I have done, you know, a lot of work on the executive suites of the NFL and trying to understand how and why decisions are made. You know, we really tried to turn it on the last couple of months and really get into exactly how it is that Dan Snyder survived. That's a pretty good description of how we got here and how we did the story. But one of the things that was remarkable is Tisha's reporting showed, because Tisha really drilled down in Maryland and Virginia and showed how Snyder was playing with house money and was really, he had the best situation possible for an owner. He had two states vying against each other to try to get the stadium in their state. And as Seth said, he blew it. He blew it because of what occurred, the revelations that occurred in, in the winter, and he made all sorts of missteps that are very well detailed. And by the way, with on-the-record sourcing, I keep seeing John Brownlee, and I hope we talk about Dan Snyder's lawyer here a little bit about oh, John Brownlee. I'm loaded, I'm loaded to bear on that. Oh, good. Uh, I watched his interview with Mike Florio, and I was absolutely floored. He said that you guys knew that what you were printing was false. He actually said that. So yeah. I'm ready to take that one on too, Dan. I have my, Mike Florio hasn't called me. He know he knows how to reach me, and he hasn't called any of us to. The first for, time for, in Mike Florio's life that he ever didn't push back on something, he stood silent in the face of these yeah. absolutely remarkable accusations. It blew my mind. Some of the things that he said, palpably false. The general thrust of the article is a fabrication, and they knew it was false when they wrote it. We can take that on now, but but very quickly, let me just finish the thought. So once Tisha Sorry. had that reporting and, and the fact that the stadium was a failure for Snyder, and then Seth and I were hearing pretty loudly around the league from owners and top executives that the fact that Snyder couldn't get a stadium bothered the owners and people in the league office and executives as much as the sexual misconduct allegations and the toxic workplace culture. That also says a lot about the NFL and how they make judgments about owners' viability. And so we were hearing that. And the other thing is that owners were ready to talk. I mean, uh, you know, it's hard to get owners to sit down and talk on background, but these owners were ready to do it because of how fed up they are with Snyder. And as one owner told me, a veteran owner, all the owners hate Dan. But to get to Florio, I mean, look, I'm happy to answer questions about that, talk about that, because I feel strongly. Not a single person has come forward other than John Brownlee and the unnamed commander spokesperson who doesn't put her name, by the way, to any of her statements. Those are the only two people that have pushed back on any fact in our story. No owner has come forward. No executive has come forward. Nobody has come forward and said anything in our story is wrong, with the exception of John Brownlee, who is Dan Snyder's lawyer from Holland and Knight, and the unnamed commander spokesperson. Shocking, right? Well, it's not yeah. that shocking. It's yeah. kind of the playbook, right? No, it's the, I'm, just call I'm it being... fake news and, you know, and hope that other people will, will agree. No, I'm, I'm being I'm being facetious here. I'm, yeah, I'm no, I know. Not, not I know. I know you are, Dan. I know. Dan, I, I want to give it over to you. Obviously, you know, we have some questions, the Brownlee stuff, but Dan and I, we're obviously going to get where you slash already are in the sports law nerddom. Uh, Dan and I at one point in time did a conduct cast doing a live stream of the congressional hearing. So we were watching very closely, speaking of maybe perhaps the nerdiest thing you could ever do. But we were watching very closely Roger Goodell's comments. And we were saying, if, you know, this could be a Donald Sterling moment. You could have an Adam Silver coming up and saying, 
banned for life. I'm going to, you know, make all these efforts to get this put to a vote. But as we watch that, what we discerned, right, at that point in time, they obviously didn't have the votes because Roger Goodell in the last two years, right, I think it's been well reported, has been uh, made about 100 million in the backs of the NFL from some pretty successful years. So Roger Goodell is going to do what the majority of owners tell him to do. Maybe not super majority that requires to get that, that 24 votes. But as of June, when the congressional hearings were held, you had a pretty good indication that you weren't there. Now, fast forward, you know, five months from, from June, it's a very different sentiment out of the owners' meetings. And really, the only thing that's changed is the ESPN report. So again, we are saying this, we have no affiliation with ESPN, but something has changed in the last couple of months, whether it was his inability to get a stadium deal, whether it is the ongoing investigations from the state attorney generals, which I'm sure, Tisha, I have a sense that you want to get into, but something has palpably changed. So for our listeners that are maybe, you know, getting um, a little uh, tired and, and of us talking about Dan Snyder, something has fundamentally changed in the last couple of months. But Dan, I'll, I'll give it to you. I know you have a lot of stuff on Brownlee, and I think that's important here, where the pushback is now coming from, you know, Commander's well, HQ. Let me just quickly say to that point, though, one of the things that has changed and one of the things that our story changed is it alerted everybody in the league to the owners, executives, that Dan Snyder has been telling people around him that he has dirt and he's going to blow people up. That language that a partner uses about another partner has offended and angered owners around the league. I know that. Seth knows it. Tisha knows it from our reporting since the story has come out. So that changed the conversation greatly about Dan Snyder. But you're absolutely right. Goodell is a political animal. And in June, he felt there was not a supermajority. But now one may be within reach. We'll find out at the owners meeting in Irving, Texas in December. Besides Jerry Jones, who does Dan Snyder claim to have dirt on? You mentioned that there are six owners. Obviously, one of them is an Ursa. Uh, it's Jerry Jones plus five. You know, where is their vulnerability here? Well, I think there's the perception of vulnerability with a lot of them. But I think that the Jerry Jones thing, the reason why we highlighted it was just so important because Jerry Jones, everybody knows it's hard to know who's the most powerful owner in the NFL. I actually wonder if right now if it's Tanya Snyder, because <laughs> she actually has more ability to determine this thing and determine Dan's fate than anybody else. But Jerry Jones is, is the most influential owner, and he usually gets what he wants. And he's been viewed as a long-time firewall of support for Dan. And the fact that we have Dan in that story sharing his honest thoughts about Jerry and, you know, hinting that a relationship that might have worked from a business standpoint has actually turned pretty toxic, I think, was the reason why we chose to highlight that material, because whenever somebody hears that, you know, Dan Snyder's fate might be up in the air. They look to Jerry and where's Jerry's head on this. And we have his raw thoughts in that story through our reporting. And, you know, the fact that he has told people that he might not be able to protect Dan anymore. This is beyond him. Jerry Jones is important too, because we have a source who told us that Snyder told an owner that he has dirt that Snyder has dirt on Jerry Jones and badmouth Jerry Jones and said, all he wants to do is get into your pocket and all he cares about is money. So this is Dan Snyder trashing the one owner who yeah. has been his most loyal supporter. And we'll see where Jerry Jones comes down on it. If you look very carefully at the comments he's made, I think the best thing he said about Dan Snyder since our story was published is that he's had a long relationship with Dan Snyder. I mean, Jerry <laughs> Jones is literally the mentor to Dan Snyder. I saw it when I did my profile of Jerry back in the summer of 2014. Snyder constantly called Jerry, 
seeking advice then for a new stadium. And Jerry would light up anytime Snyder would call him because he loved talking business with a fellow owner. And Snyder knew all the right buttons to press with Jerry. And I think those days are long gone. And we'll see it in the, in the coming weeks and months. Well, let's connect a thread here. When we're talking about the use of private investigators, and there's also the revelation that Dan Snyder is paying the Reed Smith law firm $500,000 per month, which is $6 million a year, I would imagine that the private investigation and the digging up of dirt isn't just simply scouring public records. We're talking about surveillance. We're talking about talking to friends, neighbors, other business associates. Can you paint us a picture as to what kind of dirt Dan Snyder claims to be digging up in looking at those various buckets, because he's paying a law firm an awful lot of money to do something that I could probably do on the internet for five grand a month if somebody was willing to pay me. So we're obviously talking about deep, deep investigative dives here involving surveillance. Are we talking about that? You guys had some very interesting reporting. Don, I'll give you a quick shout out. We've listened to all of your interviews in the last couple of days. So this is, I think, a very fun point. Snyder and and Dan, obviously you have some questions on, on Brownlee afterwards. But Snyder issued a statement saying that that section of the reporting was not true. And it was very creative, we'll say uh, artfully drafted how he issued that retraction. He said that he didn't hire anybody and he also didn't authorize his lawyers to do it. So Dan and I, again, in our sports law nerddom, I hire vendors all the time. Sometimes I hire PIs, sometimes I hire process servers. And sometimes, right, if I get paid enough money by a particular client and I have 500,000, hypothetically, let's pretend that's the number, and I have that sitting in my retainer account, I don't always have to ask the client's permission to do certain things. Sometimes as a fiduciary on the case, and I'm an attorney, right, I can do certain things without the client's permission. If, if, they, if they gave it to me ahead of time, do whatever is necessary to win this case. You don't have to nickel and dime people and ask for approval for every type of spend on a vendor. So there is certainly a lane where Dan Snyder handed the case to these attorneys, gave them $500,000 a month, and he wasn't on the phone with them every single day. And the attorneys were given some leeway um, without asking for specific advice. So we'll defend your, your guys' reporting here. I saw the retraction, you know, the, the comments issued kind of refuting your report, and Dan and I, the attorneys, were sitting here, and we're like, um, that doesn't mean that Snyder didn't do it. That just means that he didn't necessarily specifically authorize on those occasions. That's why I said... I believe I said it on Twitter, but I said it in a couple of these podcasts that John Brownlee is denying an allegation that we didn't make in the story. We didn't say that Dan Snyder personally wrote a check to a private investigative firm to dig up dirt on Jerry Jones. Read the story very carefully. We said he said he has dirt. How he got that dirt is probably exactly, Dan, as you described. That's how it works, right? I've been covering, look, I've been an investigative reporter for 30 years. I've been a reporter for 35. I know that there's a separate lane. You authorize your attorneys to get vendors to, so you have an arm's length relationship to this kind of information. And by the way, there is a deep record. Anybody can go to the congressional report and see what was done. And Tisha, you could speak to this. I see you're nodding. Can see what Dan Snyder's attorneys did to the women, the courageous women that came forward to make these allegations about the toxic workplace, there were people, investigative, uh, private investigators that showed up on the doorsteps of these women and handed them their cards and dug deeply into what they did. So there's a there's already a track record here. And, and if you look at the lawsuit that was filed in India by Snyder and how he his lawyers tried to use that in finding out who the sources were 
They went after Bruce Allen, the former president of the team. They also went after the reporters at the Washington Post to try to find out who their sources were. So again, to for John Brownlee to now say, oh, my hands are clean. Well, I know nothing at Holland and Knight about what anybody did over there at Reed Smith. That's his defense, by the way. He says there's he has no personal knowledge at Holland and Knight of any private investigators that were hired. Well, why would he? He's over here at this firm defending Dan Snyder from this stuff publicly. Has there been a single Reed Smith attorney out there talking about what they know? Did they grant interviews to Tisha, Seth and me about the questions we have? No, they put out blanket denials. And that was it. So and, you know, the Reeds, we can talk about the Reed Smith law firm at length. I mean, the fact that Reed Smith, it's the same group of people. So Jordan Siv is an attorney. He's a partner at Reed Smith. OK, Joe Tacopina is a, a criminal defense lawyer in New York. Those guys represented Alex Rodriguez when he was in all that trouble for steroids and sued Major League Baseball. What did they do? They hired a private investigator to follow Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball. It's confirmed. So why would they not hire a private investigator to follow Roger Goodell for Dan Snyder? That's a question I'd love to ask these guys. They let me ask it. And Brownlee, in his interview with, with Mike Florio, actually provided how it works. <laughs> because to echo what Don said and what you guys said, law firms have license to do this, not only so that they just get the job done, however it gets, jo- gets done, but also so that the acts are protected under attorney-client privilege. That was a key point that John Brownlee made on that podcast. Yeah, Brownlee did give the playbook. He inadvertently, in his defense of saying that none of this is true, as far as he knows, gave the playbook of how law firms do this kind of work for clients so clients don't know the nitty gritty of it. But again, the key takeaway for your listeners, guys, is we didn't say Dan Snyder has dossiers sitting on his desk. We said that he's told people, including a fellow owner, that he has dirt on owners, league executives, and Roger Goodell. I guess we should ask this. We were hesitant to ask the question, but I think while, while we're on the topic, you know, the comments that John Brownlee made to Mike Florio seem indicative of someone that is thinking about potentially filing a defamation lawsuit against, you know, ESPN with the result, uh, you know, as a result of this particular article. You know, Dan is someone, uh, Dan Snyder has obviously been very litigious. He finds any number of reasons to sue anyone, right? Uh, we talk about the Washington Commanders organization playing sports law bingo and, and finding lawsuits where maybe there shouldn't be. Do you guys expect a lawsuit here from from Snyder's camp? Well, I heard what Brownlee said to Mike Florio, and Florio asked him a pretty good question. He said, you know, have you reached out to ESPN and taken exception to a single fact in their story? And Brownlee responded, no, I haven't. It would be a fool's errand to do so. But we've not heard a word from John Brownlee or from any other of Dan Snyder's lawyers. This is a media tour that Brownlee is doing, pushing back. And as I've said you know, on this podcast and in other places, no one has come forward and taken exception to any fact in our story other than John Brownlee and an unnamed spokesperson for the team. So we feel confident in our reporting. The network has uh, stood by the story in statements repeatedly, and it is a well-documented story. I, I take exception to something Brownlee keeps saying, that it's all based on anonymous sources. There are some anonymous sources in the story, but there's also some on-the-record sources as well, and quite a few documents that we used to buttress our reporting. We've got a lot of candidates that could serve as the tipping point or the trigger for the commencement of NFL disciplinary proceedings against Dan Snyder. 
So I have to ask you, we have witness tampering, witness intimidation, digging up dirt on your colleagues. Yet, despite all these misdeeds or alleged misdeeds, does everything actually hinge on the Mary Jo White report? What if that proves to be inconclusive? We're talking about alleged sexual incidents that's, that date back to 2005 slash 2006 in the case of Tiffany Johnston and 2009 for the alleged airplane incident, which led to a $1.6 million settlement in the civil litigation system. Those would be time barred under the statute of limitations. What if this proves to be inconclusive? Where do you see the next you know, level of this story playing out? Are we just waiting for this report to come out? And what if, what if nothing comes of it? Is there a backup plan? I think the next thing that's going to come will be the Congressional Oversight Committee report. The chairwoman of that committee was primaried out in August. That was that super competitive race up in New York where you had two longtime incumbents that were pitted against each other because of redistricting. And so uh, Carolyn Maloney, who has chaired that committee and has been a longtime advocate for women's issues. I mean, her main platform has always been the ERA amendment. And so she's leaving. She's done come January So the expectation, and I think a lot of why you saw Brownlee in particular go on a publicity, I would call it a publicity tour because he's been on all of the radio stations here in the D.C. area, he's been on all the TV stations here, is because there is this expectation. If you look at the calendar, there's only so many dates left for the Oversight Committee to release its report. The election is next week. And after that, there will be a window where I expect the report to come fairly quickly. From that point forward, who knows when the Mary Jo White report will come out? The NFL's not giving any kind of timeline on that. I wouldn't be shocked if we perhaps threw a wrench into both of those investigations with the story and that they are now trying to, you know, do their own investigations and report out their own lanes of inquiry based on, you know, the allegations that were made in our story. Let's back up about the House Oversight Committee report. I mean, this would, whenever it's released, it's going to follow an 11 hour deposition that was conducted in Tel Aviv, Israel. And we have yet to see any excerpts or transcripts of that deposition released. Is it your expectation that this 11 hour deposition, which could provide a treasure trove of evidence, is going to be released in the public domain at some point? Or is there an agreement that is going to be kept private? No, I don't. My impression from Maloney's staff is that there will not be an agreement. But however, it is Congress's prerogative and it's the tradition of the Oversight Committee to release what they choose to release. And so I would not hold out hope that all 11 hours of his deposition gets released. The other one that I'm very interested in is Bruce Allen's deposition, because Bruce Allen has been the guy that Mm -hmm. Snyder and his team have tried to deflect blame onto. So it's, it's, Allen has not responded to any requests for interviews. He really has gone to ground. So this will really be Allen's opportunity Mm -hmm. to defend Mm -hmm. himself in the public eye. But both of those depositions will not necessarily be like the public does not necessarily have a right 
to get those depositions. Congress, as you guys probably know very well, is exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. <laughs> so we cannot demand those records. We have to hope that they will release those records. Now, John Brownlee, by the way, has said in his media tour that he wants the entire 11 hours of testimony that Dan Snyder provided released. He's on the record saying he welcomes that. He wants every question and answer to come out. He must have thought it went well because he told Mike Florio that it went so well that at the end of the interview or the deposition, the lawyer for the, for, for the House Oversight Committee said, we, have, we don't have any more questions. I mean, come on. That's what you say at the end of every deposition. Yeah. Right. You're at 11 hours, the equivalent of two full days. That's, that's like nothing. I had a source, you know, who knows about this stuff, remind me that it's not 11 hours of talking. There are breaks. There are lunches. The, the 11 hours is the is the full day. And so the actual testimony itself may not be anywhere close to 11 hours. Dan, I do want to jump in and just talk a little bit about the Mary Jo White investigation, because you raised a really good question earlier about, you know, why is now the entire basket here of trouble for Dan Snyder, the Mary Jo White investigation, and not any of the findings from the Wilkinson investigation? And again, it goes to the larger point here that the Wilkinson investigation was never really a, a fact-finding, truth-finding, transparent process, right? It was intended to keep this as quiet as possible, give Snyder what turned out to be a slap on the wrist, a $10 million fine paid by the team, by the way, not by him personally, and a suspension in air quotes that, according to John Brownlee, ended last November. So the suspension for the toxic workplace of Dan Snyder, according to John Brownlee, only lasted from July to November of last year. Now, the NFL has disputed that, which again shows almost the kangaroo court nature of this entire process. The NFL saying, no, they're on the record. As far as we're concerned, Snyder is still, as Roger Goodell likes to put it euphemistically, has stepped away from the team. Yet he was on the 50-yard line at AT&T Stadium a few weeks ago with Jerry Jones. And this past Sunday, you know, he was in Indianapolis in the owner's suite watching the commanders beat the Colts. So, you know... Mary Jo White investigation is about sexual misconduct. It's about that, that earlier incident, the Tiffany Johnston one. But the one on the airplane that, that Snyder's attorneys paid $1.6 million for this woman not to speak to Beth Wilkinson and to keep or paid $1.6 million back in 2009. And she signed a non-disclosure agreement and then attempted to pay her another seven-figure sum. This is something we reported that's new in our story she flatly rejected an attempt by Snyder's lawyers for another seven-figure sum to be paid so she would not speak to either Beth Wilkinson or to Mary Jo White. And she has spoken to both, including Mary Jo White, we reported for the first time, a source told us. So that investigation, from what I've heard, and, and, and I think Tisha and Seth can also speak to this, I mean, there are some high expectations being put on that, but I believe that Mary Jo White, from what I understand from speaking to somebody who knows her a long time, does not like the attempting the attempts by attorneys to shut down witnesses. And one was made here. So she might make a lot just of that attempt that was made by the woman who claims Snyder sexually assaulted her on his private jet back in April of 2009. So in, in the law, we call that an obstruction of justice, by the way, in the context of a 
criminal investigation, that's that's a federal you know, felony obstructing an ongoing investigation, because that's what he did there by trying to shut down that investigation and by bringing lawsuits through David Donovan. So that's a, that's an interesting angle. I always wondered whether and to what extent that could come up in the Mary Jo White report. Dan, so it's just, interesting yeah. you say that because I feel like over the last 20 years of covering not just sports criminal inquiries, but all kinds of federal investigations, the FBI and then DOJ, typically, at least in my experience, they don't get them for the initial charges. What they get them for is obstruction of justice or lying. You know, they, they get them for when they lie to the FBI. So that's the kind of thing I'm always keeping an eye out for is can, can anyone catch anyone in a lie? The thing that I, I think in our practice, too, which I think is relevant, right, the Beth Wilkinson investigation took close to a year, right? And I think on this end, we're approaching the nine, 10 month mark for the Mary Jo White investigation. We've called this on our show, maybe like the cleanup investigation. And I brought up earlier the Robert Sarver report, which we, we try, try to tie a line between all of these things. The NBA is not historically very transparent when it comes to reports, but Robert Sarver got a very deep report. The NFL in the middle of all this got the Stephen Ross report, which was more than we got uh, on the initial Beth Wilkinson report. So if we're tracking this, obviously, I think what we're trending towards is a full written report with Mary Jo White. My question for you guys, I have some inclinations of this, but I have not seen it reported anywhere. You know, when we, let's say I work a very big account, sometimes I'll have to give monthly reports. Sometimes I'll have to give biweekly reports, but it's very rare that I'll go two months without providing the client with an update on something that I'm working on. So let's say, you know, the Beth Wilkinson investigation was 11 months. A lot has been made that, you know, we can talk about John Gruden a little bit. I think Dan has some questions on that front. But why it took so long for this, the nature of those emails to come out was the NFL sitting on those for a couple months. And now if we fast forward to the Mary Jo White investigation, I'm trying to put my finger on what exactly has changed at the NFL level, why we're hearing a different tone. Uh, from the circles, and I'm sure a lot of the people that you were speaking with. Is it at all possible that some of the findings of the Mary Jo White investigation have made their way back to NFL HQ? And, and that's maybe why we're hearing a different tone here? I think so. I think it's possible. Something has definitely changed. A big part of it is, as our story reported, Snyder is playing in a dump of a stadium and has absolutely no chance of getting another one in the Washington, D.C. area, which is the fifth wealthiest metro area in America, and he has the 32nd dead last team in total revenue. So that's gotten the attention of a lot of owners. But it's possible that there have been updates, just as Beth Wilkinson was giving updates to the NFL periodically, it's possible Mary Jo White has given updates to Roger Goodell and Jeff Pash, the general counsel of the NFL, and they have a sense of it. I don't know that, Dan, uh, from my own reporting, but I certainly can tell reading between the lines of some conversations I've had with some sources, particularly since our story was published, that uh, something has definitely changed. Not just the fact that owners are upset about the language that they discovered that Snyder was using about them, but there, there are high expectations being put on this report. And it is quite possible that through a back channel, yet the NFL is aware that it's going to be serious, serious news for Snyder. I think if you look at a timeline, there is a definite before and after. And the Mary Jo White is kind of that delineation, at least for me. The Washington Post reports come out in summer of 2020, and the Wilkinson report comes out, and Snyder survives. And it's kind of died down. And everyone begins to go about their business. And Snyder's working the halls of Richmond to try to secure himself of 
a very nice stadium and all of the ducks are in a row for that. I mean, he was able, his lobby, I shouldn't say he, his lobbyists were able to secure the support of some of the most powerful people in Virginia. I mean, you just don't really, I covered statehouse politics before I came to ESPN and it's very unusual to see this kind of bipartisan support where you have the most powerful Democrat in the Senate who runs the Senate and then you have the House appropriator who's a Republican both sponsoring the bill. It's not just that they support it, that they're sponsoring the bill. And then you have the governor signaling that he will sign this stadium authority because this was all done through stadium authority. So all of this is in the works after the Wilkinson report. The the report comes out, he gets fined in July of 2021. The behind the scenes lobbying efforts are happening through the fall of 2021. And everything is going dandy for the stadium in Virginia. And it's gone, it just goes through in rapid speed through committee with very little obstruction. It gets to both the House and the Senate floor and goes through floor votes with no problems. And then the roundtable happens. And this is February 3rd of this year, 2022, when the women get up in front of Congress and they start to tell their stories, including Tiffany Johnston. And that's when the NFL announces that it is essentially doing a do-over. It's going to have Mary Jo White now investigate and be the independent investigator, ostensibly for the Tiffany Johnston claims, but it's reopening the case, so to speak. At the same time, we were able to show through Freedom of Information Act requests and interviews with lawmakers in, in more than just Virginia, Virginia, D.C. and and Maryland, which is, of course, that is the DMV, as we call it here. That's the audience. That's the fan base from which the team really pulls. We interviewed more than a dozen lawmakers in this area, and we pulled, <laughs> I personally read more than 900 letters that constituents, voters, fans or voters wrote to their lawmakers. And it begins, it really truly begins after that roundtable. People are outraged and they're angry and they are threatening to throw their lawmakers out over this issue. If you give this man a stadium and they're and they're name checking the congressional investigation, then I will do everything in my power to make sure that you lose your office. I will rally the troops, so to speak. I mean, these letters were very adamant. There were a lot of letters. Don't get me wrong. There were a lot of letters about people who didn't want traffic. But many of the letters were very specific about the sexual assault allegations, the toxic workplace culture, the congressional investigation. And those letters don't stop. They keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. So there's a tremendous pressure all of a sudden on county, state, and even congressional lawmakers to really change course. And so the stadium bill dies. It had everything. It had had no problems. And it dies in conference committee. And if anybody who, you know, goes through the legislative process knows conference committee, it's done. It's just figuring out the itty bitty parts between the Senate version and the House version, but it's essentially passed and it could never get out of conference committee. So for me, I think that round table and the start of the Mary Jo White investigation is also the moment where public sentiment reaches a threshold where people are fed up and there's real ramifications for the way you treat women in your workplace. And that's a new phenomenon for the NFL. And I'm very interested to see what happens after the Mary Jo White investigation, how seriously the treatment of women 
will be taken by this league. Roger Goodell, you know, so two weeks ago at the league meetings, Ursay comes out out of nowhere at the bottom of the staircase and says he believes that there's, you know, they're trending towards cause to hold a vote on Dan Snyder. And he almost seems to use the Mary Jo White investigation as the tipping point. And a couple hours later, Roger Goodell comes out and he makes clear that they have to use the Mary Jo White investigation for what it is and go from there. I think that the league is extremely nervous about owners using the Mary Jo White investigation as something that is predetermined and prejudged and is the cause to remove Dan Snyder. Because as you guys have written about, it's difficult to remove an NFL owner. This is not as easy as we think. We keep talking about 24 votes. In a weird way, that's just the beginning. And yeah. it's something that I think that like we, with all of these investigations swirling into Dan, the reason why I think that the Mary Jo White investigation is getting so much attention is not only because of what Jim Irsay said, but it's because it's the only one that Roger Goodell has mentioned that will serve as, a, as something that they will evaluate. Like he considers it the facts. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about the congressional investigations, the investigations by attorneys general in the same way that he talks about the Mary Jo White investigation. It's something that in theory they can control. And I think that's very important. Let's talk about the process and where this turns to next. You know, memorably, Roger Goodell, when asked at the House Oversight Committee, you know, roundtable, why isn't he removing Dan Snyder? He goes, I don't have that power. Yet the NFL Constitution and bylaws provide two different pathways to removing an owner uh, for violating the Constitution and bylaws or for committing conduct detrimental to the welfare of the league. Number one is Commissioner Goodell can make his own determination and uh, give notice in a hearing to, uh, to Dan Snyder. And, and, and if he feels that the monetary penalties aren't enough, he can make a referral to the executive committee or alternatively, the executive committee member uh, could be Bob, uh, Jim Irsay or it could be any other NFL owner can make the initial referral. Uh, since Roger Goodell seems to wanna have no fingerprints on any accusations, do you see this more likely trending towards an owner-initiated referral, or do you think everything has to begin with Commissioner Goodell to start the process, assuming that there are facts there? Yeah, I think that Goodell has made it clear, and our story made it clear, that you know we have a quote from an owner saying, Roger Goodell doesn't want to touch this. He's made it clear publicly when he testified before Congress that he says this has to be owner-driven. Now, I also have somebody very close to Roger. This is a a team president who knows Roger well, knows his thinking and says, Roger wants Snyder out of the league yesterday. So Goodell has no use for Snyder anymore. And one thing that Roger Goodell has proven to be, and Seth touched on this earlier in the story we did about the handling of Spygate. Remember, Spygate got swept under the rug because Goodell got his job just a year earlier, in large part because Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, pushed for Roger Goodell to be voted in as the commissioner. Then suddenly this massive Patriots cheating scandal happens, and Goodell has his general counsel step on the tapes, the evidence of Spygate, in a conference room at Gillette Stadium, and it all goes away. Goodell is a political animal. As this person close to him told me, if he feels there are 24 votes, He'll initiate it himself, but he is not going to stick his neck out 
As the same team president told me about Roger Goodell, he's like a driver of a Ferrari V with a V12 engine. The NFL is such a money-making machine and everybody's making so much money. Goodell's just keeping his hands on the wheel and making sure it doesn't go off the road. That's really how he does things to think about his thinking. So I think it's going to be raised by an owner and Ursay's already put the marker down. But I know from speaking to other owners, and I know Seth does too, that there are other owners that will be happy to second that motion. The biggest actual defense, I don't think necessarily as Seth said, it's Tanya Snyder is the most powerful owner. I actually think it's the nature of the precedent. It's unprecedented for and for the owners to kick somebody out of their exclusive club. It's the most exclusive club in America owning an NFL franchise. It's never happened before. And so there are going to be owners thinking, do I want to pull that trigger? Because then at some point, the turret gun is going to swing around and point at me. And so I actually think that's the best shield right now that Snyder has, because judging from our reporting, he does not have a lot of friends around the league. Okay, Seth, I want to ask you one crucial last question, because you were all over the internal dispute at the league meeting over the indemnification clause between the National Football League, Stan Kroenke, and the fellow owners. So you guys, you know, your team was the first to report that there was some unrest in the ownership ranks about the lack of transparency surrounding the league's decision to investigate Snyder and the decision not to have Wilkinson investigate. Why is Ursay now beginning to get bothered by this? Because this was a source of controversy. Going back two years ago, Ursay can't claim to have been in the dark about what was happening. What triggered his pivot on this issue when he knew full well what the deal was two years ago? Why now and not two years ago? Why is this well, public over today? I think that just more information keeps coming out. And not only the, the lack of action, but the lack of conversation becomes more and more galling for owners. Ursay has mentioned that. We have owners in our story, which obviously came out before Ursay made his comments, who echo exactly what he said. And so I think the question is, again, though, the precedent is very, is very clear, what Don mentioned. And I think that one of the most interesting things is, even though it's never happened in the NFL, when owners are kind of forced out of owning a team across sports, it isn't the owners themselves ganging up and threatening to vote them out. As we reported, you know, in our story, reminding readers that Donald Sterling wasn't voted out of the NBA. His wife forced him out of the family trust. That's what got it going. Even Sarver made a decision that it was best to sell. There is no inclination, and we made this very clear, that Dan Snyder wants to follow along that path. And that's where I think that it's going to get really interesting. I think that there's a sense that any way they can try to avoid throwing someone out and setting that precedent that Don referred to is going to be the preferred path. And I think that it's been thrown out there that once it's clear that the 24 votes are there, would someone like Jerry Jones go to Dan Snyder and essentially plead with him to sell his team, that, you know, make the case in a language that only those men would understand? And... I don't know how successful that would be. It's worth pointing out that Dan Snyder also said he would never, ever change the team's name. And he did. He buckled under pressure when it became a financial matter and it, it dealt with sponsorships. So Snyder has said he's never going to do something and then ultimately changed his mind in the past on a very big ticket issue. That's true. And also in speaking to owners before the story was published and, and also since then, 
the preference for owners is that he'll just sell the team. And, and Seth's point, and, and I've, I've raised this in, in previous podcasts since our story was published, the Jerry Jones solution is, is certainly something that other owners have thought about. Can Jerry, it would only be Jerry because of the long relationship that Jerry and Snyder have. I mean, when Snyder showed up, he bought the team when he was 34 years old, guys. He was the youngest person to ever buy an NFL franchise. The commissioner then, Paul Tagliabue, called Snyder the perfect person at a press conference. But when Snyder showed up, he was full of bravado and full of himself. And Jerry Jones recognized in Snyder himself. And because Jerry showed up in the owner's room the same way 10 years earlier. And so they really have a bond, which is why Jerry has been almost tortured in his comments. And the Jerry Jones solution is one where this could end up. But to Tisha's point, yeah, I mean, he has done something he said he would never do before once again. But this one, I think he's going to go to the mat on because he he knows, as you guys have, have pointed out in your terrific coverage of the difficult pathway that exists under the NFL constitution and bylaws of getting an owner removed by that vote. I mean, you have to come up with evidence. This is something that Ursay referred to and Goodell has referred to. They had evidence on Wilkinson. They just weren't interested in it. So this do-over now by Mary Jo White carries all this importance. But if they really wanted to, guys, they could go back, right? What exactly did Beth Wilkinson have? Because that $10 million punishment and that suspension, and I'm using air quotes around it, really didn't amount to much. And I know... I'm not just sure. I know this from talking to some owners. They're disappointed in the way that was handled. And by the way, they also feel as if they have been kept out of the loop. This is very important. So Ursay just told the Washington Post a few days ago, I have never even been asked, he told the Post, about my feelings about Snyder ever once. This was completely run by the league office. So the owners feel disenfranchised on Snyder which I think also works against Snyder's best interests right now. And I know that from other owners and other executives as well. This has been handled by the legal office and Snyder, and you're keeping the owners out of the loop. There's frustration there as well. And I think we're going to see that play out as well at the next owners meeting in Texas in December. I, I, I could go on here and, and just keep you for a couple of hours. This has been a fascinating conversation. Final thoughts. Do you think this is headed to an unprecedented NFL disciplinary proceeding to remove an owner? Or do you think it gets handled privately with a come to Jesus, you know, chat between Jerry and Dan? Or does it go, you know, DEFCON 4? I think it goes DEFCON 4. I think he wants to give the kid, the team to his kids one day. That's me in the background going, yes. Yeah, I think so too. I'll be surprised. Look, a lot of it is going to be, the devil's going to be in the details of the Mary Jo White report. And, and it's, it's kind of sad in a way for people who are rooting for Dan Snyder to be forced to sell the team or to agree to sell the team on his own, that it's coming down to a report that seems walled off from all the previous things. I mean, to Tisha's point, things did change in February because you had a second woman come forward and make allegations about sexual misconduct on the part of Dan Snyder, right? This wasn't just one. We had the airplane, the Jane Doe allegation, who was the woman who was paid $1.6 million to keep quiet. Now you had a second one. And so that's what changed the dynamic in the state house in Virginia and in Maryland and changed the dynamic. So yeah, I, I think that Snyder, the team makes Snyder cool. I've said this before. It's the thing that makes him special. He's loved the team since he was a boy. 
he's not going to give it up without a massive fight. I think for me, as a third generation Washingtonian who grew up watching this team win Super Bowls, I think it's imperative that the NFL never lose sight of the fan and fans are voters and the voters are starting to really make their voices heard in this particular area. And I also think it's really important to never lose sight that this is about the treatment of women. And this is a league that doesn't have female players and doesn't have many female executives. And you could quibble about female owners, but women are not well represented in this league. And I think it's a watershed moment. I think whatever the NFL ends up doing and what the owners end up doing, and I think Ursay hinted at this with his comments at the owners meeting is this is a look the optics of this for the NFL, for its female viewers, its female fans, and frankly, fans of the of the entire area, what they do matters. And people are watching and they're making their voices heard. So wherever it goes, it's not just about Dan Snyder. It's about an entire region that has incredible pride in this team and has seen so much frustration, has the worst stadium in, in the country, frankly, has a team that keeps losing, and is embarrassed. This town is embarrassed by this team. And the NFL needs to remember that. Not just by the team, by the owner. Dan Snyder is arguably the, the least owner. popular or one of the least popular people in Washington, D.C. That's saying something. It takes a lot for everyone to agree on something in this we, town. We had it's a, a bipartisan hatred of Dan Snyder. That's pretty remarkable. It's only because James Dolan doesn't live in Washington. <laughs> That's right. We had a piece of reporting at the end of the story that when they played the Eagles in September at FedEx Field, and obviously the stadium looked like either a neutral sites field or, you know, an Eagles home game, that people in the business side of the building of Washington were happy or relieved, at least, that the stadium was full. And it didn't matter that there was so much green in there that, you know, like, you could be confused about who was actually playing at home and who the fans were really rooting for. They were just happy that for once the optics of all of those empty seats wasn't there. And, and it galls some owners that 15,000 seats at FedEx Field are, are shut down or closed off. You don't see that at any other NFL stadium They've lost in America. They've lost a third of their seats since the heyday of Jack Kent Cook, the former owner in the 90s. They... That stadium originally had more than 90,000 seats, and it's now down to just over 60,000. And the stadium proposals, the, you know, there's been estimates out there that the new stadium, if you could ever get it, would have maybe 50,000. So, and, and they can't give the tickets away. They had a ticket special for three games for 99 bucks. I mean, it's mind-boggling because when I was a kid, you couldn't get tickets to a game. It was the hottest ticket in town. And this is a town that has a lot of sports. We've got the Caps. We've got the Wizards. We've got the Nats. We've got WNBA. We've got, you know, we've got DC United. We have a lot of sports in this town. And that has always been the hottest ticket. And now they can't even give the tickets away. We could talk about this for, I, I can assure you, a couple more hours, but we want to be mindful it's the of your best time. We don't even have to ask questions. And yeah, <laughs> we just let you guys go at this point. We don't even don't need to be interviewed. Guys, you were fantastic. And from all of us here on the on the sports law side of things, we really appreciate doing a little bit more digging uh, and obviously never giving up on the leads and giving up the stories because you've obviously opened up a can of worms here. So we, we super appreciate that we got the full trifecta, everyone behind the story. 
And uh, we'd love to have you back on again as this progresses. Oh, please. Thank I'm you. sad that this interview's over. Uh, Damn, we can't keep them here all day. They're not under oath here. We got to let them. We got to let our witnesses go. It's, okay. it's still 10 hours short of, of, of uh, Snyder's deposition. So Seth, Don, Tisha, thank you so much for enlightening us with these terrific insights and the background to an amazing investigative piece. Thank you from both of us. Thank you. Thank you. So that was the ESPN trifecta. If you're looking to connect with Don, Tisha, or Seth, their handles are in our show description. So, Dan, we, we hit really every angle. On, and uh, I know we were looking at our show outline. We probably had legitimately probably another hour of content if we wanted to do it. Yeah, uh, we had to stop them at some point. But, Dan, we're big, big takeaways. Would you, would you think where we go from here? I think what I came away you know, having a better understanding of is not that the Mary Jo White report is the thing that's going to be on deck. The House Oversight Committee's investigative report has a deadline, has a natural deadline of, you know, if there's a change in, in, in change in power in Washington, D.C., that's going to come out within the next two months. And I think they are focusing us on thinking about that as the next shoe to drop in the Dan Snyder saga. But I mean, they were terrific. Are you kidding me? An hour getting into the, you know, all the different angles of their deep investigative dive into, into Dan Snyder. It was just a compelling, a compelling conversation. We didn't even have to ask questions. I mean, they carried, they carried the show. It was amazing. Yeah. I thought they were fantastic. Dan, there was a question that, uh, you know, I, uh, we said it on the show, but I was a little hesitant to ask it whether they felt that they were going to get sued by Dan Snyder's great question. Uh, you get all the credit for, for coming up with it. And then it's a matter of who was going to ask it and how they were going to respond. And I think Don handled it the right way. The truth is that Dan Snyder has sued people for far less, right? He sued people in India. He sued he had lawsuits with the minority owner. Dan Snyder is involved in a host of litigation. But if Snyder's going to come out and essentially accuse this group of fabricating a story, you would think that would have to be on the table. But I, I you know, applaud Don for standing up and defending his sources. And, and again, as we mentioned it, Dan, at the, the Baxter Holmes saga with the Phoenix Suns, you know, Baxter Holmes got dragged through the mud by the Phoenix organization saying he had an agenda, he had an axe to grind. And guess what? Baxter Holmes was correct. And then Robert Sarver got forced out of the league. So, you know, it's the mothership. They're not going to invest in this type of story unless they felt pretty confident about it. And after us speaking with them, I have to say, I feel pretty confident, you know, that, that they're on the right scent here, of course. Well, I mean, Dan, look at look at the headline. It's sources say that Snyder claims that he has dirt on owners and Goodell to key themes there a sourced story they spoke to over 30 people they didn't just write it and take like poetic license with the facts they spoke to 30 people many of them off the most the many on and many off the record to kind of provide the the uh, you know sort of the facts that fueled this investigative piece and it wasn't corroborating what actually exists but what dan snyder told these people and it's, it's all, you know, the devil is in the details, in the headlines. Sources claim that Snyder says. That's a long way away from what John Brownlee is saying on his television interviews. And that's the beauty of having a lawyer go on the radio and go on television. He can say almost anything he wants without any fear of a libel suit. Deny, 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 attack the writers, call the whole thing a fabrication. ESPN's not going to sue. I think Don hit the nail on the head. And when you read the piece... This was heavily vetted by lawyers, deeply sourced. They spoke to so many people and, and I didn't even really want to bring it up. I want to focus on the facts because the, the, you know, lawsuits are just lawsuits. And this is not one that is ever, ever going to have a, 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 a prayer 
of getting over a motion for summary judgment. I mean, he's a, he's a public figure. He's a public figure. These are very difficult lawsuits. And yeah, would it shock me if Dan Snyder brought a suit against ESPN? No, but I don't think it's the focus of the story. And right now, I think our attention should be laser focused on the next steps facing Dan Snyder rather than the next steps facing ESPN because suits will be filed. They'll be handled by attorneys. But we're now entering into the next phase of this great unknown which is what revelations will emerge from the uh, Mary Jo White investigative report, what will come out of the House Oversight Committee's report. And you know what? The number one takeaway that I got was, you know, I think it was, I don't know if it was Don or it might have been Tisha that focused on the possibility that Mary Jo White will, will zero in on the witness interference and the attempt to buy off the accuser who settled with Dan Snyder for $1.6 million in 2009. And then, you know, Snyder and his, you know, affiliates utilized the court process to prevent Beth Wilkinson from interviewing, you know, this accuser and then tried to buy her silence. That in and of itself is a form of actively interfering with an ongoing investigation. If that's not an obstruction of justice, it's at the very least a form or conduct detrimental to the business and welfare of the NFL. The NFL is trying to do an investigation and one of the owners is standing in the way and trying to obstruct that investigation. That's, I think, where the vulnerability is for Dan Snyder. I mean, because obviously these incidents took place such a long time ago. There could be a difference of opinion and two different versions of what occurred and how do you corroborate anything? But what you can corroborate, what is in real time, what is easily provable are the attempts to prevent witnesses from cooperating with a league mandated investigation. And I don't know if it was Don or Tisha, but that's the money shot. That's the low hanging fruit. If you really want to build a case against Dan Snyder. Let's see, Dan, uh, you know, we're not going to speculate. We're not going to pontificate, but that's it. You know, it's out there at this point. They, we've crossed the threshold of things that should kick Dan Snyder out of the league. At a certain point, it's going to come down to the owners of whether they want to go down this rabbit hole. Uh, and as you mentioned on a previous podcast, go through this mini trial, go through the song and dance, or maybe there's a game of chicken where, where Dan Snyder blinks. But we've reached that point of no return. And, and um, you know, that that's really it. So these guys have done a fantastic right. job reporting and we'll see if there's anything, anything else they could possibly uncover. But my uh, spider sense says that these guys are going to remain on the scent here. I want to make a couple of points. I know we've had a long episode, but one of the things that concerns me about, you know, a decade plus old, you know, instances of sexual misconduct is to the extent that any of this was within the purview of Beth Wilkinson's investigation. For example, the $1.6 million settlement may have been encompassed within Wilkinson's review. There's an issue of double jeopardy here, right? You know, because Mary Beth, Mary Jo White is looking at some of the same issues that Beth Wilkinson looked at. And I think there's some riskiness in relying on, you know, older cases, older claims, as well as duplicative claims that may have been part of the prior investigation. And uh, I've been saying this on online for the past couple of days. I think the real focus, well, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, or sexual assault. They should be part of the case if her findings justify it, of course, that should be part of the accusation and part of the charges brought against Dan Snyder. But I don't want the witness interference, the witness tampering, the witness intimidation and harassment shunted to the sideline because that is real time, that is contemporary, and that is easily provable. 
And if you're going to hang the charges on, on older cases, there's a real risk here of having this unravel in court. But I think any court, any, any fact finder, any, any member of the judiciary understands what obstruction of justice means. And you know, the notion that, that Snyder and his legal team interfered with the ability of witnesses to cooperate with an NFL investigation is chilling to me. And if the standard for expelling an owner is conduct detrimental to the welfare of the NFL, well, how is not interfering with an NFL investigation conduct detrimental? I mean, that's, that, that, that easily clears that bar. And I'd like to see if there's, a, if there's a case brought that the witness interference is included within the charges and not just focusing on decade-old allegations. Dan, I think that's a good place to end it. Obviously, there's a lot of meat left on this bone. We will see what the Mary Jo White investigation entails. We will see what the state attorney general's investigation entails. And then, Dan, as we mentioned plenty of times in the show, the congressional findings still never been released. The deposition testimony of Dan Snyder over that 11 hours never been released. So a lot of meat on that bone, as they say. Dan, I think that'll do it. And uh, yeah, stay tuned, obviously, for more Commander stuff. Big thank you to Tisha, Don, and Seth. One of my favorite episodes that we've done in, in a long, long time. So super appreciate it, Dan. And excellent job recruiting the, uh, the ESPN trifecta to the podcast. And so yeah, for Dan, myself, the Conduct Detrimental family, big thanks to Mike Lawson, our producer extraordinaire. And we will see everybody next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. 